Last week, we looked at the first few verses. I'm not going to rehash that, but I'll tell you three things because we used that passage to kind of say, hey, this is a helpful piece of the Bible that explains what RUF's about. And there's three things. We're about the Bible, um, not in a defensive way, but we're about the Bible because we believe that there's an answer to the question, can I trust anybody in the world, anybody in the universe to tell me the truth? to tell me reliable truth. Is there anyone I can trust not to spin the truth, not to manipulate me, not to lead me 10 feet down the road, and then I find out what they said didn't hold water? We believe there's an answer to that question. We believe that the Bible is God introducing himself to the world, whispering in our ear, this is the way the world really is. This is who you really are. This is what you're made for. This is who I am. This is how we come together again. The second thing is we believe... Uh, And we're about the gospel, which is grace. If that word doesn't make sense to you, that's okay, because we'll talk about it a little bit tonight. But what that means is the Bible's about something. And we don't get to say what it's about. So it's not like, here's some strategies for virtuous or moral living. That's not what the Bible's about. Bible's not like how to give yourself an emotional pick-me-up, like find a verse and it kind of stirs up your insides and you get happy again for about another three hours and then you crash again. It's not what the Bible's about. The Bible is the story of the unbroken God breaking into a broken world and repairing everything through Jesus. That's the gospel. And it's a, it's, a, it's a claim that this happened in history. It's not an inspirational story or else it holds no water. It means nothing. But God actually says, I am the only one who survived the fall, like where the earth and us and everything in it got crushed and disordered and chaotic. He alone survived that unbroken. And so he alone is able to help us in our brokenness. And so we want to be a gracious community where you don't, like nobody wanted you and said, oh, shoot, you did that this summer, you don't get to come here. Or you struggle with that? Or you doubt that? Or you don't believe the Bible? No, like, come as you are. This is a safe place. And that's not something that's cheaply purchased. It takes a lot of, uh, it takes actually believing this stuff that you get to come as you are. Uh, This is a safe place to be that. And then the last thing we said is RUF is a place that's about community because... Um, There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Even if you're not a Christian or don't know where you are spiritually, there's no such thing as a human being who can live alone. People who live alone, weird stuff starts happening, right? They're like the weird hermit lady in your neighborhood growing up, or like when grandma or grandpa ends up being alone, living there, like crazy stuff starts happening. They start buying all kinds of stuff off TV or believing weird conspiracy theories, but people are made to live with other people And so that's why we go to Chihuahua's baseball games. (laughs) And that's why we like raft down the river and get third degree burns from the sun. That's why we do this stuff is because we we need to know each other and be known. We're not made to hide. We're not known. We're not made to kind of just know where we're from and what our major is. We're made to know each other and be known. And so we want to be about that too. All right, tonight I'm trying to keep it simple again. I'm not a very ambitious person. I'm just like, keep it small and simple. I got two questions that this passage drives up to your doorstep and drops off for you to answer tonight. One is, do you know what you need? That's for everybody in the room. Do you know what you need? The second question that this little tiny passage drops off at your doorstep and asks for an answer is, do you know where you are? Do you know what you need and do you know where you are? Obviously, you're, you're connecting the dots like there's something maybe deeper about this and like I'm not asking if you can locate where the spiritual center is, but do you know what you need and where you are? So why don't you stand up, we'll read this brief passage and then we'll, uh, we'll spend a few minutes talking about it and 
and wrap it up. This is from the Apostle Paul who last week said, hey, I'm not speaking on my own behalf, speaking on God's behalf. Um, So Paul says this, from the day that we heard, he's saying of the faith of these little people in this tiny little village called Colossae, thus the name Colossians. Since we heard of your faith, we've not stopped praying for you. Here's what we've been praying for you. Asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you would walk or live in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit, living a fruitful life in every good work and increasing or growing in knowledge of God. He's he's continuing his prayer. And may you also, may you be strengthened with power according to God's glorious might for all endurance and patience, a joyful patience, not a bitter, cynical patience, and giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray real quick. Father, I was thinking today what a waste it would be for my friends here to come and give up an hour of their Tuesday night if all they hear is me, if all they do is uh, sing songs to the wall. So, Father, not to sound holy and churchy, but because I know my need of it and I know their need of it, we need you to come and teach us. We need you to do these very things. Share with us your wisdom. Grow us. Give us energy. Um, and uh, Father, we pray that you'd come and do this because you love to. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. All right, why don't you take a seat? Thanks. Here's a conundrum. Did you know that it's possible for you and me, it's possible for a human being, to really desperately, urgently be in need of something and not even know it? Did you know it's possible to urgently need something and not even have a clue about it? And I'm not talking about like little stuff like UFBO and every, all your friends know it, but you can't smell it. Or like, you don't have a filter and you say things you shouldn't and all your friends know it, but you don't. That little stuff down here, but all the way up to the other end of the spectrum, it is possible that there could actually be a life-shaping, massive um, thing or danger or threat right in front of your face and we not even be able to see it. That's a possibility. There's a girl in Georgia uh, where I grew up uh, named Ashlyn Blocker. And this girl, uh, she is famous in the medical community because she doesn't feel pain. She's known around the world in the medical journals and everything as the girl who doesn't feel pain or the girl who feels no pain. So she, like, you know, if you put a little sharp object right there, it sends this just lightning fast nerve signal up to my brain and my brain perceives that as pain and my brain sends a signal back to that point says, hurt, get this off of me. And it's a beautiful thing because then you don't have people stabbing you and you don't even know it. But for Ashlyn Blocker, you put the same sharp object in her wrist and somewhere in there, this genetic defect, that nerve signal stops and it never reaches the part of the brain that interprets that signal, and so it never sends a signal back saying, hurt. And so uh, Ashley Blocker has a very carefree, painless life. She has a very dangerous life too, right? Um, This is the way that 
the New York Times uh, described a day in her life. They did a huge expose story on her, spent like a week in her house. This is how they describe a couple of days living with her. They start, the girl who feels no pain was in the kitchen stirring ramen noodles when the spoon slipped from her hand and dropped into the pot of boiling water. It was a school night. The TV was on in the living room. Mom was folding clothes on the couch. Without thinking, Ashlyn Blocker reached her hand right into the boiling pot to retrieve the spoon. And then she took her hand out of the water and she stood looking at it under the oven light. And she walked over to the sink um, and ran cold water over her fading, white, peeling skin. And something clicked. She, she was like, Mom, I just put my hands in the water. And her mother, Tara Blocker, dropped the clothes and rushed to her daughter's side. She said, oh my gosh, after 13 years, it's the same fear. And then she got some ice and gently pressed it against her daughter's hand, relieving the burn, a relief that the burn wasn't worse. That was, that was like their first night with her. Spoon falls into the boiling pot of water. She reaches in and grabs it. Feels nothing. It's when she sees her arm that she says, something's wrong. My skin's coming off. These are a few other episodes that they noticed happened. She said, then there was the time that she burned the flesh off the palms of her hands. When she was two years old, her dad was using a pressure washer out in the driveway. If you've ever used one of those, they get very hot. Uh, The muffler, especially. So she came up when her dad turned his head, put her palms on it. And uh, her dad came back over a a few seconds later and looked, and the skin was gone off his daughter's, the palms of her hand. Um, And she said another time she lifted, um, or sorry, there was uh, a time with the fire ants that had swarmed her in the backyard, biting her over a hundred times while she looked at them and yelled, bugs, bugs. (laughs) And then there was the time she broke her ankle and ran around on it for two days before her parents realized something was wrong with her. So Ashlyn Blocker feels no pain, which is a problem because Ashlyn Blocker doesn't know what she needs in any given moment. So, I mean, like I'm standing in an anthill and I don't realize I need to not stand in an anthill. (laughs) Bugs, how cute. Or like, it's not good that my arm is in a pot of boiling water right now. She's She's completely oblivious to that need. This is, our, this is what we said, right? It's possible for a human being to, to be in a place where something bad is happening or you're in danger or something big is right in front of your face and we don't even see it. And, uh, and so for Ashlyn Blocker, she's blind to very obvious needs because she can't feel them. Um, my, my kind of point, that first question, do you know what you need? He's kind of flowing out of this story about Ashlyn Blocker. Ashlyn Blocker doesn't know what she needs. Her mom has to tell her, Ashlyn, your ankle's broken. It's very swollen and disfigured. We should go to the doctor. Ashlyn doesn't know what she needs. The question to you, the passage asks you, and I'll show why in just a second, but it asks you, do you know what you need? Or are you and I kind of like Ashlyn? Not physically, but are we like her in a spiritual sense, in a relational sense? Where stuff's happening to us that we're not feeling. It's not registering. We have needs, but we don't even know they exist. And so if you don't know a need exists, you can't ask anybody to satisfy it, right? Um, And so that's kind of my point. Is that the problem that we're all in? We don't have the time tonight to kind of look at the whole landscape of the Bible, but I find this encouraging. It's kind of bad news, but I find it encouraging because I'm like, yep, that's what life feels like. The Bible, when it looks at humanity and what happened to us as people, it says, Our spiritual nervous system just doesn't work. 
there's a block somewhere. Stuff happens that should be triggering a response, that should be triggering pain, conviction, whatever else, but it just doesn't happen. And so we're people who live life numb, not aware to uh, the needs that are around us. But also, life just gets busy, right? Life just gets distracting. Like it's like week two, and uh, some of you are already studying for tests and quizzes and going to labs at 8 o'clock on Friday nights. Like stuff's already picking up. So sometimes we are not aware of our needs, not because of some numbness, or inability to perceive it, but sometimes we're not aware of what we need, what we desperately need, because we're distracted by other needs that have kind of cut in line. They've climbed the ladder above what, what Paul would say our true needs are, and they've kind of taken precedence. So, for instance, uh, it's rush week, or it just ended, or something like that. So, if your primary, if, if you feel like my, the biggest need I have in life right now is getting a bid from this sorority or this fraternity, all, all, any other sense of need is going to be eclipsed by that. That's all, you're, you're like laser-like focused on that. So you're not going to feel a need anywhere else. If losing 10 pounds has the urgency and just has absolutely captured your attention, you're not going to be aware very much of any other needs because it's completely focused on it's still bathing suit season. I still have a class where I got to be and go swimming or do yoga or whatever else. I got to get those 10 pounds off. It eclipses all the other needs. And you, therefore, you don't know what you need. Because it numbs you in the other areas. Or if you uh, are kind of, your life has become all about getting that job at that lab in Los Alamos or Albuquerque. Or that hospital where you can put your nursing degree to work. If that's become the singular focus of your life. If that's, if I said, hey, what do you need right now? You said, I need that internship. I need 10 pounds off. I need the bid. I need quiet for my roommate then it's going to be so huge on your horizon that you don't see all of the other needs. And so it's possible that while you're worrying about these things and I'm worrying about all the stuff that I worry about, other bigger, higher priority things could be right in front of your face and you don't see them. Does that make sense? So we all come here tonight. Here's the point. All of us, me, you, all of us come into this room tonight with gigantic blind spots in our lives. Like there's stuff in your life you can't see. There's stuff in life you don't feel. It's happening to you. It's real, but we don't feel it. And uh, especially, I think, we have these blind spots to God. So let's push pause for a second. Let me make sure you're tracking it. How, do you, how, do, how would you right now, sitting in your seat, how would you know? Okay, I'm tracking with what he's saying, but what are, what are the things I think I need the most right now? Because this sounds a little abstract. What is it that I think I have to have? Well, it shows up in your prayers, if you're a religious person, Christian, whatever, and you pray, and if you're not a praying person or Christian, it shows up in your complaints. So what you think you most need shows up in your prayers because it's like, God, I didn't study for that test, but I need the answers, you know? At that moment, you most need this. Or God, save my parents' marriage because I heard the fights all summer living at home. What you think you most need shows up in your prayers, and if you're not a praying person, or even if you are, it also shows up in your complaints. The things you're blaming God for not doing. God, why haven't you done this? Or if God is good, he would have done that. So both places it shows up in prayers or kind of the prayer of unbelief, which, called, which is a complaint, which is bitterness. So that's how you can know right now. You can get, make things tangible and practical. What do you think you need? Do you know what you need? I said it shows up in our prayers. So here's the connection of the passage. This is a prayer. You picked up on that, right? He even says, I'm praying for you. 
This is a prayer, and it's not just any old prayer. This guy who wrote this prayer said in the passage we read last week, hey, I'm not just any old dude. I'm an apostle, which means like Jesus himself knighted me in a sense. Like he sent me. I'm not here on my own authority. It's not like I'm just like, oh, I'm a prophet. You should listen to me. I get the bigger room. You get the smaller room. It's like he's an apostle. He's one who bears the very authority in the word of God. And so if our prayers reveal what we most need, do you think Paul's prayer for these people reveals what they most need? Does that hold? If, our, if, it's, our, where our, if it's in our prayers where we see what we, what we most need, wouldn't we see in Paul's prayer what he thinks as an apostle these people most need? And by the trickle-down effect, what you most need? I think he does. And so here you see Paul uh, praying, and it's not just a prayer. It's a complete reorientation for you tonight. It's a gentle, maybe for some, or an aggressive wake-up call, too. Because Paul is saying, hey, Paul is like acting like Ashlyn Blocker's nervous system. It's like a rent nervous system. I can't feel, so somebody else comes and shakes me and says, you can't feel this, but this is happening. This is what you need. Get off the anthill. Or get your, like, you're dehydrated and you don't even feel the headache. Drink water. So Paul's coming in and through his prayer, he's revealing to us what we most need. When do you pray? When you already have what you're praying for? Or when do you ask somebody for something? When you already have it or when you don't have it? You pray out of what you lack. You pray out of your poverty, right? I don't have an A. I have a D. I'd like an A. Could I have an A? You pray out of your poverty. You pray out of what you don't have. So if Paul is praying for these people, things like, God, fill them with a sense of who you are. Fill them with spiritual wisdom and insight. Make them fruitful. What does it imply about what they're like at the present time? If he's begging on their behalf, God, please give this to them, what does it imply about whether they already have this or not? It's possible they don't have any. I don't think that's the case because we read the rest of this letter and it's like, okay, Paul's pretty encouraged by them. But they had a long way to go. These people hadn't arrived. They're just like you. And so when, when Paul prays for these things, like they would be filled with the knowledge of God, he's implying, or he's implying that they're spiritually clumsy, <laughs> He's implying that there's a lot of blind spots and ignorance. There's just a lot they don't know about who God is and what he's like. Like, how's he going to respond when I tell him what I did, what he already knew I did? Like, what's he going to do when I come to him and ask for forgiveness or whatever? Like, they get caught up there. They get tripped up. Otherwise, why would Paul be saying, Father, fill them? You don't fill something that's already full. Water just goes over. Paul's saying, God, Pour the pitcher on so the cup is overflowing. Spiritual insight and wisdom, again, which implies they lacked, to a certain degree, that very wisdom. Can you relate to that? Like, I think this is awesome because the Bible gets you. Bible's not naive. It's not clumsy. It's not like the grandpa who can't believe where culture's gone these days. And you just roll your eyes. The Bible is sharp-edged, on the scene, first responder, knows the way the world really is, and always has been and always will be. And so it gets you when you feel like you, 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 the dots just don't connect all the time. So Paul says, Father, connect the dots for them. 
I want, I want you to show them who you are. Then they'll know you're beautiful. I want you to show them how powerful you are. Then they won't get as worried. I want you to show them how loyal you are. Then they'll stop doubting that you're going to leave them and abandon them one day. They were people prone to think all those things. And I think you are too. Because I know I am. What else does he pray? He prays that they would bear fruit in every good work and have an increasing knowledge of God. Which, what does that imply? If, if Paul's asking for those things, what does it imply about their present situation? If he's praying that they would bear fruit in every good work. Well, I think it means, at the very minimum, it implies that their growth sometimes gets a little stunted or they plateau. You know, when you're working out, you're like, I got this great regimen, I'm getting huge all of a sudden, and then you're like, stop getting, there's like no results ever again because you're like, hit your plateau. They feel plateaued. They feel burned out. Um, they feel like they're not growing. This is the person uh, in, in this church he's writing to or the person in the room tonight, the guy or the girl addicted to porn who's saying, it's been five years, I've tried every strategy, I've tried every filter, I've heard every piece of advice, and I'm still completely owned by this thing. So Paul's like, Father, make them fruitful. Make them grow. Because they feel stuck. This is the person terrified of big crowds. Five years later, after being terrified of every big crowd they've ever seen, they're still struggling with it. So Paul says, Father, they lack this sense of forward momentum, this sense of growth. But Father, give it to them. He prays that they would be strengthened with all power, like be strengthened with God's power. Not just some store brand power, but name brand power from the powerful one himself. Father, strengthen them, which implies what? They're weak. This is Christians, by the way. I'm, I'm not, I haven't forgotten about you. If you kind of don't, don't know where you are with God or you do know where you are and it's not with him. But right now, Paul's talking to Christians and he says, hey, I know you're weak. I know you're tired. I know you get easily disappointed with your performance. I know you want to throw in the towel sometimes. Father, strengthen them. Father, give them perseverance. Like, help them to endure. Help them run the marathon instead of the sprint. This is the person who, uh, you know, at age 20 or 25 or 30 or 35, finally looks in the mirror and looks at whatever struggles they've been dealing with, the eating stuff or the sexuality stuff or the the anxiety stuff, or whatever, and they look in the mirror and they say, am I ever going to get over this? Is this ever going to get better? Because I don't think I have what it takes to get through another 50 years of life with this struggle or this temptation or this pattern or this addiction. So Paul says, Father, strengthen them. Give them endurance and patience, which implies they're impatient and tempted to throw in the towel. Do you feel like you're starting to see yourself on the page here? I hope you do. Because otherwise, I just told you a lie when I said the Bible gets you. I think the Bible is so realistic, so reassuring, because it says, you, you say all these things about what's really going on in your life, and it goes, yep, yep. Not in a judgmental way, but in a like, if you've ever been to a counselor and you tell them what's going on, it's like, finally someone understands what I've been trying to put into words. He prays for grateful hearts, which implies maybe their hearts weren't always so grateful. And on and on. Here's the point. I think this is a picture of you. This isn't dead words on a page from 2,000 years ago. Human beings haven't really changed. We struggle with the same stuff. I think this is a picture of you. And I think Paul is like with Ashley Blocker. He's coming to you. And he's turning up the volume on your spiritual nervous system. And he's saying, 
regardless of whether you've been captivated by the 10 pounds or the bid or the lab internship or that girl to call you back or that guy to pay attention to you, regardless of where your attention is, come home. These are your true needs. If you're a praying person, this is what you should be praying for. And this is what you get to pray for. This is the, take these words. You haven't prayed in a while. You feel guilty because you haven't prayed in a while. These are like three sentences. They're short. Why don't you start here? It's probably super holy because it's in the Bible. (laughs) Pray these things for yourself. Pray them for your mom and dad. Pray them for your roommate. Pray them for your friends. Please pray them for RUF. Oh my gosh. Do you know how prone this group is to all the stuff we just talked about? Forgetfulness, throwing in the towel, forgetting why we're here. Forgetting that we have a God who's rescued us. Yeah, all of that. That's us. So if Ashley Blocker wants to survive, and especially if she wants to thrive, somebody is going to have to come and reorient her to her true needs. Same thing. God is going to have to come to you and reorient you, reintroduce you, even tonight through this passage, to what you truly need. The second question is shorter because we've already set it up. First question, do you know what you really need? Second question, do you know where you are? Do you know which, where you are? Because they're, they're actually connected. Where you are shapes who you are. Where you are has a lot to do with how you act. Here's an example. When you forget where you are, you forget how to act. Alzheimer's person walks out of their room in nothing but underwear or something, walking down the street, enjoying the weather, has no clue that this is probably not the proper attire for rush hour. They don't know where they are, so they don't know how to act. Hallucinating or delusional person don't know where they are, so they don't know how to act. When you don't know where you are, you don't know how to act, you don't know how to live. So when the Bible asks us, where are you? I don't even think we have to qualify that and say spiritually. Just where are, in life, where are you? Where are you rooted? Where are you? The Bible comes with some helpful clarity that I'm going to tell you up front. It's going to shock you. Please don't hear this as hostile language. Hear this as beautifully clear. At least the Bible puts its cards on the table and says, you might not like this. You might get get angry that that we just said this, but this is the way it is. The Bible, when it asks you, where are you? It says, human beings, there's two places where they are. In sin or in Jesus. I didn't say where Christians are. The Bible makes a big claim about the whole world. It says, for humanity, there's two places human beings do life. In sin, which is death, oppression, captivity, slavery, chains. You don't get to make the decisions. Sin makes them for you. You're a slave. You're addicted. That, he calls it the domain of darkness. Or in Jesus. Location, location, location. In real estate and in life, it's all about location. Where are you? Paul's in prison when he's writing this letter. He's in a jail in Ephesus, and it's the year probably 60 AD. There's no electricity yet, believe it or not, and there's no indoor plumbing. And he's using the word here, domain of darkness, or dungeon. It's ironic. Paul is in a dungeon. Seems very free and joyful to me. Seems very liberated, even though he's a captive. And he's telling these, he's he's describing the world. He's saying, you're either in a dungeon of darkness, or you're free. You're alive. To God, to other people, you're engaged, you're awake in Jesus. Those are the two places the Bible conceives that you could be 
dead in sin or alive uh, in Jesus. Really quickly, before you think that if you're a good enough person, you get released on early time, it doesn't work that way because Paul says, what qualified people to get broken out of that dungeon and made alive? Does it say God saw your qualifications, your time for good behavior, that you're better than your roommate or the people down the hall in Garcia? Does it say that's why he showed grace to some? No. It said he qualified you. Jesus qualifies sinners, and that's what makes them worthy. He makes them worthy. The unbroken one who didn't fall breaks in to the dungeon, transfers them in, as Paul says, not just to a beautiful paradise kind of place, but he says he puts you in Jesus. We'll unpack that the next few weeks. That's going to come up a lot. We won't do it tonight. We need to end with this story. As you think about where are you, some of you in the room either are dead and you know it or you're dead and you don't know it. Some of you in the room know or think or are pretty sure that Jesus at some point in your life came to you in your death and resuscitated you. He qualified you, the unqualified and made you worthy. And you know that. So you're like, okay, I'm over here. God has planted me in Jesus. He's attached me at the hip like a Siamese twin. So wherever you are, this story applies to you. Shawshank Redemption came out before most of you were alive, I think. However, it still to this day makes top 10 movies of all times, of all time. There's a, it's the story of a couple of men who basically get life sentences Brooks is the oldest of these men. He's been in the state penitentiary, this is like 1950s, for like 50 or 60 years. He got put in when he was like 18. He's now like almost 80 years old, just walking around with a cane. Sweet little old man by this point. Never remembered anything of his life apart from being in captivity in a dungeon, enslaved to the state. The end, the end of the movie Brooks is released. His t- he served his time. It was like an 80, whatever, 60-year sentence. He served it. So there's this weird scene. They come to his cell and they're like, hey, Brooks, your time's up. He's scared. I don't know what life's like on the outside. They walk him to the edge. It's like concrete here, grass here, and you see his foot step on the grass. And Brooks just walks right out of the pen- penitentiary down the road. The rest of the movie is what happens the next couple of weeks. He gets a job as a grocery scanner or whatever, a clerk. Uh, He gets his own apartment for the first time. But keep in mind, he has no idea how to live on the outside because he's never lived there. He doesn't know how to live. He doesn't know what he needs because he doesn't know where he is. And so Brooks ends up, after three or four weeks on the outside, ends up taking his life. Carves his name in the beam. Brooks was here. The point of this story is this. Some of you are Brooks pre-release. And what you do tonight is you cry out to the one who breaks into prisons and releases people dead in their sin and captivity. But some of you have been released long ago and you don't know how to live on the outside. We struggle with this. And I want you to know that when you step outside of that prison, whatever it was 10 years ago or yesterday, there is Jesus waiting on you. You are not alone having to figure out life on your own on the outside, having to figure out what freedom actually means, what it's like. There is Jesus waiting on you. How do I know? He's the one Paul's praying to. Give them strength. Give them endurance. Make them last because they can't on their own. 
Make them wise because they're kind of not put together. Make them grow because they're stunted. Do you know what you need? Do you know where you are? Let's pray. Father, we pray for your help knowing what we need and where we are. Pray that no matter where we are, we would see Jesus as the answer. He is the answer for the one who is not connected to you. He's the answer for the one who is connected to you. Nobody in this room is outside of the need of his grace and power. And so I pray that even tonight or this week, we'd actually feel that. We ask this in your name. Amen.